You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. On a screen, but in person, um, albeit in these unique circumstances, it is still awesome to see you all. Kids included, kids, great to see you. Um, praise God for opportunities like this where we can gather in light of all that's going on with COVID-19 and the necessary precautions we want to take in order to meet. Um, so thanks for being here. Thanks for coming. I hope that the Holy Spirit ministers to you through the preaching of God's Word, through singing worship to Jesus, through communion, through fellowship. Acts 15. And that's just kind of what happens when you kind of go through a book of the Bible. You kind of initially map it out, and then you realize, wow, some chapters or some particular passages are more, you want to spend time in and think about and soak, and you realize there's so much there. And Acts 15 is one of those chapters, not only in Acts, but in the entire Bible that is pivotal. It's pivotal what we read here. So now here we are in Acts 15, and we're probably going to spend at least three sermons in this chapter alone because of all that we read and see and, and the impact that it still has on our faith, on our faith in Jesus Christ. Um, one of the reasons why it's pivotal is because we, we do see the historical development of the church, the early church, as it grows. But in that, we also see this defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I say that, that, that assumes something else. There are people who are not preaching the gospel, who, what I'm going to be talking about in a little bit here, are preaching a, what we call a false gospel. And Acts 15 really um, unearths that, like, what are we talking about? When we say the gospel, which we we use that word a lot here, what do I mean? What does that mean? Right? Is it just like a throwaway word that all the churches use? Or does it have some depth does it have massive ramifications of, for your life if you believe in the gospel? And this also means there are people, there are churches that preach a different gospel than what we read here in Acts 15. So I've decided just to pause, not pause, but kind of slow down and, and just take this entire chapter in. So this sermon is part two, with last week's sermon kind of being part one. I've been entitled the sermon the same, same thing as last week, which is purely grace or grace plus. Are we talking about the pure grace of the gospel, or is there something else that we see here that's it's the gospel plus something else? And that's the question that this chapter answers for us. So I left off in verse 21, and today's passage is obviously connected to the first half of the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Acts 15, and I'll begin in verse 22, and I'll take it all the way to verse 35. So let's hear God's word for us this morning. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them And send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, 
leading men from among the brothers with the, follower, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. Verse 30. So when they sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. Many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is clear. Um, it's clear in terms of what is the gospel and what is not the gospel. And we thank you that we can look at passages like Acts 15 and see immediate application to our own lives. And so, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we trust that you are with us, instructing us through your word. And may that happen as your word is preached. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On uh, Wednesday morning, Sharice showed me a brief video of a pastor promoting his local church. That's something I've done uh, many times, um, as you've seen on social media. But he said something that caught my attention. So he said something about um, a Sunday gathering, their Sunday gathering, that kind of caught my attention. He said, hey, come to, I'll just call it XYZ Church, if you want to hear an inspirational message. Come to this church, this local church, he was saying, if you want to hear an inspirational message. For the remainder of my day, I asked myself a question. I mean, I got this video, I was like 11, so I'm, I'm mulling this over the entire day until I'm falling asleep, which is, what makes a message inspirational, right? What makes his message inspirational? And I don't know the answer to that for him, but I asked that question, what is it, what is Inspirational. In our culture, there are thousands of messages spoken with the goal of inspiring you, right? Uh, books are written to inspire. Political candidates want, want to inspire you in one way or another to vote for them. 
coaches deliver inspirational messages to their players. I remember when I was coaching basketball, or it could have been baseball, it didn't matter if I was a coach and I was coaching players, I want to inspire them to do something, right? But what does it mean for a pastor in a church to deliver an inspirational message? Is the message about living your best life now? Is the inspirational message about how you need to live out your destiny? Is the inspirational message about taking yourself to like next level thinking? (laughs) These are all book titles from Christians. Is the inspirational message about becoming the best you? Or is the inspirational message about how you're going to kill it at your job? You know, as the night wore on, and I continued to ponder what it means to give an inspirational message, I began to realize I only have one inspirational message to preach to you. Only one. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I have for you week in and week out. I mean, pastors should not need a bag of tricks to entertain you. Hearing a good story from a pastor may help make a point, but it should never be the main point. Um, Let me be honest with you for a moment. I have nothing new to tell you this morning. Not trying to bore you, just trying to be very honest. (laughs) All I am attempting to do every time I preach is to help you, what some pastors say, re-gospel yourselves over and over and over again. I want you to rejoice in the gospel and see how the gospel applies applies to every single point and avenue in your life. This is the one inspirational message that I have for you. Period. That's it. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians. I find this really helpful as it connects to what we see in Acts 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, if you hold fast to the gospel I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain, and here is the gospel message right here, for I delivered to you as of first importance. That word first in the Greek is more like primary importance. Of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, then He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. This is my inspirational message. This is my message because it's the only message that delivers on its promises. Christ crucified is the only message that forgives sins. It's the only message that offers lasting hope for the present and for the future. The resurrection of Christ proves He, the Son of God, has power over sin and death. 
And faith in this message gets you free from all the uninspirational messages that actually keep you in bondage, that keep you striving. You want to go try, live your best life now? Good luck, because you'll keep trying. You'll keep striving. And if you're anything like me, you'll keep failing trying to reach that standard. Like a laser, this gospel is the only message that penetrates the depth of your heart and causes change. The inspirational message of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection does not tell you necessarily what you want to hear, but listen, it tells you what you need to hear. 2 Timothy 4 is exactly what Christians need to hear right now. It says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. But listen to this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Does that not, like, does that not sound like today? The time is coming when, where people will not endure sound teaching, but having, what, what does the text say? Having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The uninspirational message of living your best life now tells you what you want to hear, but not what you need to hear. The uninspirational message of next-level thinking tells you what you want to hear, but not what you need to hear. So in a culture filled with so-called inspirational message, messages, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that actually steps forth, improves itself every single time to be the message above all other messages. So if you're looking for another message... I'm not your guy. With the Apostle Paul, I have only one message to preach, and it's the only message I want to preach, and it's the only message that truly inspires. Therefore, if I am correct that the gospel is the most important and inspirational message you could ever hear, you should not be shocked from Acts 15 that a council was gathered to discuss the gospel. We should not be shocked by the efforts made by, the, by this council in Jerusalem to demonstrate to these Gentiles in Antioch that they are actually one with them in the gospel. And we should not be shocked at the efforts made to shut down false teachers preaching a false gospel. Let me quickly remind you of the important moments of verses verses 1 to 21 that has led us to verse 22. You might remember Paul and Barnabas were preaching the, what I call the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ in Antioch. There were some Jews who allegedly converted to Christianity who said to these Gentiles in, in Antioch, they're basically saying to them, in order for you to become a Christian, you need to first become Jewish. That was their message. They were basically saying that the gospel of free grace is not as free as you think. 
They were saying things like, guys, you need to be circumcised, which is kind of code for them to say, you need to follow the law of Moses if you want to follow Jesus. So Paul sniffs out the lie. He's not going to allow the most inspirational message to become compromised. So he and Barnabas pack up their bags and they go to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, a council is convened. A debate takes place. All the top dogs of the early church weighed in, and the collective wisdom of the council agrees with Paul. They want to ensure that the most inspirational message that this world could ever hear would not be compromised. The ruling comes down, and James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem at the time, says this, The Gentiles are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. The gospel is not grace alone plus works equals salvation. The equation simply does not work. The math does not work. Just like 2 plus 2 does not equal 5, so too grace plus works does not equal salvation. In Acts 15, verse 22 and following, the Jerusalem Council follows up with this church in Antioch. As you read, in the passage, with a letter. So like the good old days when people actually wrote letters to one another instead of emails. Well, they got a letter, probably on a parchment, but they wrote a letter, gave it to Paul and Barnabas, and said, hey, take this to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Antioch. And so we see accompanying Paul and Barnabas, these two guys, Silas and Judas. Judas would have been a Hebrew, and Silas a Gentile, and probably a Roman Gentile. Uh, Their different backgrounds is a statement for the non-Jewish population in Antioch. Uh, Part of the statement they're making is that God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And by the way, you are a Gentile and I'm a Gentile. So God makes no distinction for those who are in Christ, which is Peter's message in verse 9 of Acts 15. In Antioch, Silas and Judas strengthen and encourage the church in Antioch. That's verse 32. What we see with this letter and the presence of these men is the importance of solidarity in partnership in the gospel. Gospel solidarity and partnership in Acts 15 is a sub-point to the main point, but an important point to make nonetheless. I'll speak more about gospel partnership in a moment, but I want to make sure the main point drives this sub-point that we see in our passage So as I already said, the main point last week is the main point this week. Only the gospel of free grace saves a person. Any other construct of the gospel is by definition a false gospel. So please listen to me for a moment, because what I'm about to say is going to push against what we often hear in our culture. It's going to push against that. Just as Paul pushed against it, I'm going to push against it as well. When it comes to religion, through the eyes of the culture, all the religions are kind of like the same. It's part of my experience as I look at the culture. And at the very least, all religions are trying to achieve like the same end goal. And what is oftentimes the end goal? For you to see yourself as a good person, and for you to have that Willy Wonka golden ticket to whatever is after this life. Whether you are Jewish, you practice Islam, or you are a Christian, or simply trying to be a good person, you all achieve kind of the same end goal. 
but you do so in your own way. So hear me when I say that this is a, a graceless message and it's a dangerous message. There are other messages from our culture that aim to dismantle what I call the gospel of free grace. Materialism wants to do away with anything spiritual or related to God. But that's another conversation perhaps for another day. But what, I'm, what I'm not trying to do is come across as like unruly or militant. That's not my goal here. That's not how I want to preach and that's not how I want to live. But I do want you to see what is being said by the culture with eyes wide open. When people were preaching a false gospel at Antioch, Paul didn't come into that passively, but he went into it eyes wide open. That's why he had to snuff out the lie and correct the issue. We just don't want to be ignorant of what's going on, but aware so that, so that we can navigate faith through the weeds of the world. So I think it might be helpful to tease out what Paul preaches against in the New Testament, which is, I think is still relevant today. What is it about this inspirational message that Paul was willing to lay down his life for? So ask yourself these questions. Is it inspirational to say that your good works can save you? Is that inspirational? Well, first of all, who is defining what is good or what is not a good work? And what about all the times you are not doing good works, right? And what about your sin, right? Does your good works absolve you from sin? According to the Bible, it cannot. It cannot. That's a lie. Your sin, regardless of how good you are, how good of a person you are, actually damn you in front of a holy and just God. Works-based salvation is not inspiring. So if you hold to a works-based salvation, here's what you'll find at the end of this race that we run here on earth. To think that the scale of justice will result in you having more good works that outweigh your sin is actually lunacy. It's not going to happen. A works-based salvation is just not an inspiring message. It's crippling, actually. It cripples you. Because you realize there are standards that you simply cannot live up to It's crippling because you realize you can never do enough because your sin and my sin is so great. Here's a slightly nuanced version of works-based salvation. I call it religious works salvation. Same idea. But your good works manifest itself by what? Going to church? Praying? Reading your Bible? participating in a Bible study, doing all the Christian things. But here is the problem. Doing all the religious things is also wholly uninspiring. You actually fool yourself by thinking that all the religious things make you Christian, and it does not. None of these things save you. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to dog on all the things that we want to do here at Redemption Hill Church. Like, I love participating in community groups and doing Bible studies together, uh, coming to Sunday celebration, right? These are good things. But a lot of people go to church their entire life and realize at the end they had it all wrong. They had it all wrong. They realize they had it backwards. 
grace and faith alone and Christ alone move us into places of worship. A person's religious practice cannot and will not save. Period. A person's religious practice cannot save. We have to get the order right. We have to get the order right. Here's another misleading and, I think, deadly twisting of the gospel. I mentioned it before, not, not because it's explicitly referenced here, but because it's currently misleading millions of people away from Jesus all around the world. Then I'll pause and put a parenthetical statement uh, here. Uh, I sent out an email to all of you to, to watch, to encourage you to watch something called American Gospel. And as I was studying um, Acts 15, um, my wife told me about the, this particular movie on Netflix and it gets after this point that I'm making right now that there are false gospels and there are particular false gospels that are more predominant in our culture predominant predominant in the world that are leading people away from Jesus so at present millions of people are being misled by what is commonly called the prosperity gospel again I encourage you to go to that Netflix documentary American Gospel Entrance into prosperity faith is entirely by your works. doesn't sound like that. My brother's nodding over there because he knows because in Uganda, prosperity gospel runs rampant and it's leading people away from Jesus. Same thing here in America. It's entirely by your works in which you enter into faith, so-called faith. The grace of the prosperity gospel is no grace to you at all. Your ability to accept the prosperity gospel is dependent upon your works. And this kind of garbage, as I've said, is being transported all over the world. For the sake of clarity, here are five basic tenets of the prosperity gospel. This is, this is staggering. This is so unbiblical, wholly unbiblical. For example, number one, the Abrahamic covenant is a means of material entitlement, meaning um, from Genesis, what we read about the Abrahamic covenant in the book of Genesis is that your destiny is to obtain material wealth as you enter into that covenant. Your destiny is to be healthy as you enter into that covenant. Number two, Jesus' Jesus' death, his atonement, extends to the, quote, sin of material wealth. Poverty, meaning the false teachers of the prosperity gospel, say that the atonement of Jesus ensures you to be wealthy. That's dangerous. Number three, Christians give up. uh, They give up in order to gain material compensation from God. So like if you give that $5 to that particular network on that particular show, then you're going to be blessed 20-fold. So if you give $50, 20-fold blessing or whatever. Just from an objective perspective, when I see a prosperity preacher flying around in a million-dollar jet off the dollars of people in poverty, I'm throwing up a red flag. I'm calling foul. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Four. Faith is self-generated, a self-generated spiritual force that leads to prosperity. Meaning, if it is up to you, it is all up to you to work up faith in God. Right? And as I've already mentioned, this is a graceless gospel. 
Number five, prayer is a tool to force God to grant you prosperity. Uh, The brass tacks of this particular false doctrine is that Jesus is your genie in a lamp. If you just rub the lamp at the right in the right way, at the right time, Jesus comes up and grants you your wishes. Again, I'm not trying to be militant here. I'm not trying to bash other faith traditions because I think it's enjoyable. Like, I, think, I think Paul takes, goes from Antioch to Jerusalem to bring awareness to false teachings that are going on. Like, hey, look up, look out. Stay true to the one gospel. But we have to know what is not the gospel. And sometimes defending the gospel of free grace means pointing out the false truths, the false gospels. So don't forget that an entire council was convened for this. The book of Galatians was written to to break through the lies and to show the truth of the gospel. We have numerous exhortations in the New Testament about defending the free grace of the gospel. We need to point out truth, put down lies. I mean, even the letter to Antioch acknowledges this point. It says in verse 24 of Acts 15, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words. He's not acknowledging the false teachers right there. And they were unsettling their minds, although... They gave them no instructions to do so. So these folks came from Antioch saying, oh, they came from Jerusalem, said, the guys in Jerusalem told us to talk to you and say, this is the gospel. And the council's like, uh-uh, we never sent them. But they troubled, to say the least. Uh, the trouble caused a council, right? So these false teachers were doing some damage. And this council um, necessitated uh, to send emissaries to Antioch along with the letter, Right? If the internet was available in the first century, there would have been a video on YouTube. There would have been a, a Facebook post, right? There would have been something on Twitter. You know, these first century Christians were willing to stand with the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though, like, think about this. They were willing to stand with the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though standing with the gospel meant their potential death. They weren't going to waver. They weren't going to back off. They weren't going to allow their culture to push them into a particular way. They stood with the gospel. Here's one of my concerns, and this actually grieves me. 21st century American Christians are compromising the gospel, and it seems like they're doing it at every corner. It truly, it's truly staggering right now. And I think we need to recapture the courageous yet loving, loving response of our brothers and sisters in Christ from the first several centuries. They stood in the face of opposition, still loved people despite being persecuted, and stood with the gospel of free grace. They believed deep down that God is for them even while many of them hung from Roman crosses. So if, if what I'm saying is like jarring you a, a little bit, right, I, I think good. I think being jarred and being awakened and aware is a good thing. 
Because we, myself included, need to wake up and fall in love once again with Jesus and make the gospel of free grace just the complete reality of our lives. Uh, indulge me for a moment while I tell you one of, one of my absolute favorite stories is more modern church history. It's one of my absolute favorite stories. It's about C.S. Lewis. It says this, During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from all around the, all around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation? Other religions have different versions of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection? Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about? he asked. And heard in reply, the colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. Lewis responded, oh, That's easy. It's grace. Christianity is unique because of grace. The free grace of the gospel is unique to our faith. And the grace of God to live in the world is unique to Christianity. God's grace for the Christian is like standing in front of the, the Hoover Dam, right? And then all of a sudden, the dam crumbles to the ground and the water of God's grace goes through you, surrounds you, and overwhelms you. That is what God's grace through Jesus Christ is like for you. Not only the moment you got saved, but right now as you sit. Let's see the initial response of the church at Antioch to this, what I would call, again, a letter of grace. It indicates the ruling by the Jerusalem council. Look at verse 31. It says, they rejoiced, this church at Antioch rejoiced because of the encouragement that, this, that it brought. We see why they rejoiced. They rejoiced because they were encouraged. But what is underneath the encouragement? I mean, this letter does say that there are several recommendations or requirements from the council to the Gentiles. If anything, these, were, these uh, recommendations appear restricting. When I first read it, I'm like, yes, we got the gospel, free grace, but hey, what is with all the other things? <laughs> right? Here's verse 29. This is what the letter says to the, the Christians in Antioch. It said, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. So what's going on here? This doesn't seem very grace-filled. It seems like actually graceless. You're like, hey, what's going on? Are we, are we back to grace plus works equals, equals you know, salvation? And yet we see that they're rejoice, rejoicing. It is what is unspoken but obvious, which is why the church in Antioch is rejoicing. Yes, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. We see that in verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these requirements. So if you remember from last week, these requirements were encouraged so that the Gentile converts could live peaceably 
among Jewish converts. These requirements have nothing to do with the saving grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The letter is simply trying to point out, in light of the new diversity now in the body of Christ, this is how you can coexist. The presence of Silas and Judas, along with the letter, does help us see why See how unity is being developed in the early church. In other words, the gospel of free grace breaks down walls of division and impacts how we live with other people. And think about it for a moment. The Gentiles rejoiced even though they were told to not eat bacon. Rejoice in the free grace of the gospel. We're going to encourage you not to eat the bacon, which if it was me. I'm going to pause. I like my bacon. I like my pork. They also said, make sure you cook your steak all the way through. No blood. I like my stuff medium rare. <laughs> For these Christians, if giving up bacon means living in unity with their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, they will happily give up the bacon. The gospel of free grace causes us to lay down silly preferences that divide us. I can lay that down. All right, I'm going to cook my steak. I don't even know what's after medium because everything's you know, medium rare for me, but whatever's that, whatever's right of medium, cook it that way. Well done. So this, so this letter is delivered in the spirit of unity, which is how this letter was received. From the church at Antioch, we not only see what a saving grace looks like, we also see what sustaining grace looks like, how we live our lives every single day as vessels of God's grace. I should circle back to what I said earlier about the prosperity gospel and other false gospels, gospels being perpetuated in light of the unity that we see in this passage. I am pointing out the obvious, but sometimes the obvious, um, at least for me, evades me sometimes. The unity and partnership between the Jerusalem church and the church in Antioch, although wildly different in terms of their cultural backgrounds, it was entirely centered on the free grace of the gospel. And the moment, the most inspirational message of free grace is, is comprised of, of unity, it just breaks down all those walls. But when the gospel of free grace is upheld, meaningful partnership takes place. So there, we're going to unify around the gospel of free grace. That's what brings us together. This church, for example, partners with other like-minded churches in a denomination called Trinity Fellowship Churches. We are able to join together to strengthen and encourage one another, just like we read in this text, in the same way Judas and Silas did. So yes, as a local church, we pursue unity, but we do not pursue unity for the sake of unity. We pursue unity that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not to say we can't partner with, with non-Christian organizations, for example, to do a common good. But when it comes to gospel ministry, we partner ourselves with others who love the free grace of the gospel. And we do speak against false gospels as well. I think that is important. Time is running long, and I know, so I'll end with these two principles I'm going to restate them. As a church and as disciples of Jesus Christ, 
we must not compromise the gospel of free grace. We must not compromise that. We must be zealous to pursue unity through this truth. We've got to be zealous to pursue unity through the truth of the gospel. That'd be the first principle I want to restate. The second principle I want to restate is this. We need to reapply. And what I said earlier, we need to re-gospel ourselves every single day. You need to remember that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ did not just impact you the moment you were saved, but it impacts you a million moments and more throughout your entire life. So yes, Acts 15 is pivotal because it tells us what the gospel actually is. And we are reminded that we need to constantly reapply the gospel to our lives every single moment of every single day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good... You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.